Good morning, Lakeview Church. You guys are getting good at that. Hey, can we just thank the choir one more time for their ministry to us this morning? I want to just take a minute while they're finding their seats, maybe just to talk about a couple things that have nothing at all to do with the message today. So this does not count against my time. I just want to make that really clear. Uh, first thing I want to share with you, uh, if you are a college student or you would like to hang out with college students, I know that in the handouts you received when you came in this morning, there's a little blurb that says small groups are starting on January 30th. But for college students, particularly on the Indiana Wesleyan University campus, our small group for you begins tomorrow night at 7 p.m. in the Christian Ministries building in room 113. Again, that's Christian Ministries Building, room 113. We're going to be meeting in there at 7 p.m. And for, for, if you're wondering right now, yes, it does count as chapel credit. I got that approved. Okay, so yes, it does count as chapel credit. You can scan when you come in. But if you're not a college student and you're like, I kind of want to feel younger and would like to hang out with college students for a little bit, just come out on Monday nights, Christian ministry. It is a Lakeview small group. We're going to actually be going through the new curriculum that we have been producing here at our church over the last few months. And this will be one of the first groups that gets to go through that. And so if you're looking for a group and you haven't joined one yet and you'd like to hang out with college students on Monday night, 7 p.m. in the Christian Ministries building, room 113. We would love to have you there. And I want to encourage you uh, to join us there. Second thing I want to talk to you about is uh, this week I had perhaps one of the best lunch meetings I have had in a long time. And if, I had a, if I've had a lunch meeting with you in recent weeks, this is not disparaging to you at all. It's just that Friday's lunch meeting for me was one of the highlights of not just this week, but maybe one of the highlights of my life. Um, I got invited on just kind of a last minute impromptu thing that there were two leaders of the underground church in China that just happened to be passing through Marion. And I got a text message late on Thursday night. It's amazing I was even still awake because my bedtime's pretty early. And, uh, but I was, and I got the text message and said, of course, and so a group of about 10 of us met at Jay's tie, and we had a husband and wife team who are leaders in the underground church in China, and we got to spend about two hours with them. And it was amazing. They talked about how they came to faith as people, both of them pursuing PhDs in the academy inside of China and how professors who were teaching in communist institutions were followers of Jesus secretly and would invite students to tea parties in which no tea was served and no coffee was served. The, the pastor said they didn't even have water to drink, but they were studying the Bible. He talked about how in his very first Bible study that he went to, they sent them out to go win people to Jesus. He doesn't even know Jesus yet. He's never even opened a Bible, and he's now on an evangelism team. Him and a partner who had just come to faith six months ago went out, and they led seven people to Jesus, and he's not even a Christian yet. Some of us have been Christians for a long time and we've never led people to Jesus. 
He talked about how they started a house church and they just had a, a few people that would gather in their home, but pretty soon this little group of people grew to about 60 people in a place where it's illegal to do these kinds of things. And so they took that group of 60 people, one house church, and they made it three house churches. And that little process of taking 60 people and making three house churches and letting them each grow has become this movement of multiplication. And that little tiny group of people meeting in that first house church has become over 1,500 people over the last 15 to 16 years. And it just continues to grow. They make these churches of 20 people and within a year they grow to 60 and that house church becomes three. And then those three house churches grow to 60 and each one of them becomes three. And, and this movement of discipleship is taking place in China right now. Perhaps one of the most favorite parts of the meeting was when we asked them to talk to us about prayer. He said, tell us what prayer is like in the church in China. And they said, well, we have to be honest with you. It's one of the things that is probably the weakest part of our faith. It's something we're trying to learn, something we're trying to develop. And so we said, well, just, just tell us about it. Like, tell us how weak it is. I mean, we just want to know. And they said, well, we, we only pray for an hour each morning as the church. We, we gather at 5.30 in the morning and we pray from 5.30 to 6.30. And then every once in a while, we'll have a season of prayer where we spend two hours a day in prayer. But as I said, it's the weakest part is what they were trying to tell us. It's the weakest part of our church. And we're trying to grow into that. We're trying to get better at that. And, and they talked about how they believe, even though China is not a Christian nation, their faith is so strong that in their mind and in their spirit, they already see it as a discipled nation. For them, it's just a matter of time because the movement has already been started. This pastor talked to us for a few minutes about how he's been detained, he's been questioned, and when he doesn't give the answers that they're looking for, they beat him for his faith. And then he said something that, that really impacted me. He said, it's always an honor to be beaten for Christ. It's always an honor. And as I sat next to this man in a restaurant in our town, I thought to myself, however strong or big I think my faith is, I have so far to go. And it was just a challenge to me and a challenge to our church that we should not give up in freedom what others give their lives to experience. We are blessed to live in a free nation, but that freedom only counts for the kingdom if we leverage that freedom for God's purposes. So I wanna just invite you again. We're in the last week of 21 days of prayer, and I know many of you have been praying, you've been gathering here in the mornings, we've been seeking God, we've been here on Saturday mornings praying and pursuing God together. But if you have not been participating, I wanna just encourage you, just jump in for this last week and let's seek God's face as a church. 
If you can't be here in the mornings for prayer, we meet at 6.30. Uh, if you can't be here at that time, just find a time in your day and watch the video on our website or Facebook page and just spend some time in prayer. And if you haven't started reading in our Bible plan or you don't have a Bible reading plan, I wanna just encourage you, jump in. Don't worry about the weeks you've missed. Just start. Just start. It's printed right on the back of your bulletin. You can find it. It's right there. It's on our website. You can uh, plug into it in, you, in the YouVersion app if you have that on your phone or your device. Listen, we just want you to be a part of prayer and the word. These are not just activities to say, look at what we do as a church. These are the things that build our faith, that make us into the people God wants us to be. More than anything else, that's what I want for us as a church. The last part I'll say about the lunch that I had with this couple was at the very end, uh, we asked him to pray for the church in Indiana. And he prayed. And he was touching heaven. And I loved one of the things he prayed. He said, God, help these weak men and women around this table to build a kingdom that will never end. Help these weak men and women around this table build a kingdom that will never end. This is what we're called to do, right? We, we don't have the capacity to change our world. We don't have the capacity to make a difference in this world. Only the power of God can do that work. And yet God's invited us into this partnership and he promises to work through us. That's why I love the song the choir sang this morning. Lord, if you can use anything, you can use me. What a powerful, powerful prayer. So before we get into the message, can I just pray for us? It doesn't matter if you say yes, because I'm gonna pray for us anyway, but I thought it was polite to ask. I wanna pray for us and ask God to use us in this day to build his kingdom. So let's pray. God, right now we pause in this service and we are grateful for your presence here, Lord. We know that when we come to a gathering like this, that God, we are not coming here in hopes that you will show up. We are actually coming into your presence because you are already here and you've invited us to gather together as your people in your presence. And God, you're here and we have sensed your work and your movement among us even this morning. And we thank you for that. And God, as we turn our attention now to the word of God, I pray that you would speak to us in these moments. God, I pray that it would not be my words or my thoughts coming through in this message this morning, but it would be the words and thoughts of the spirit of God speaking to your people gathered and assembled in this room and, and with us online right now. God, I just pray that your spirit would work and minister. And God, I echo the prayers of my brother from China who said, use these weak people to build a kingdom that will never end. Lord, do that work in and through us, I pray, and help us to live lives that make a difference for your glory and for your honor. And we pray it this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen.
So we are in a message series. We're right in the middle of it. It's a message series called Living a Life That Makes a Difference. And during this series, we are studying the life of Joseph. And Joseph's story, if you're not familiar with it, can be found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapters 37 through 50. And we're kind of just looking at Joseph's life, and we're just trying to see what we can learn about living a life that makes a difference. The reality is, is that Joseph's life really serves as a pretty good roadmap for living a life that makes a difference. He was a man of God, used by God to make an impact, not just among a few people or his family, but an entire nation, and even beyond that, to an entire region, really to the known world at that time. And so we look at Joseph's life, and we see an individual that God used to make a difference. And we just think there are things we can learn from his life. And so as we've been studying his life, we've put forward a definition from his life of what a life that makes a difference looks like. And it's going to be on the screen for you. This is what we've said. A person lives a life that makes a difference when he or she recognizes his or her God-given purpose and is committed to live out that purpose with God's help over a lifetime. From this definition, we kind of started to look at some components that really need to come together in our lives if we're gonna make a difference. And we said that this life that makes a difference is a combination really of three key components, the first of which is divine calling. And every single person has a divine calling, a calling that comes from God for your life. Right? Everybody has that. We just need to recognize it and acknowledge it and begin to live in it. And with that calling, everybody needs to have a personal commitment to live it out. This comes from us and only some choose it. As much as we would like to say everybody in this world discovers their purpose and then commits their life to live it out every day, the reality is only some people choose to live out their purpose, the one that God has given them. But we need a divine calling. We need a personal commitment. And then the third thing we've talked about is you need God's help. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't go out and make a difference in the world for God in your own capacity, in your own wisdom, in your own intellect or strength. You need the help of God if you're gonna make the difference he wants you to make. And so we've kind of been unpacking these components. And for those of you who haven't been here, just very, very quick review. We said divine calling exists at the intersection between two callings that every person has, your primary calling and your secondary calling. Every single one of us is called by God to do one primary thing, and that is to make disciples. Remember Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' words, go into all the world and make disciples. It's not a suggestion, it's not an idea, it's not something reserved just for a few people. This is God's will for your life. That you would be used by God to make disciples in this world. That's your primary calling. Your secondary calling is your personal sweet spot. Right? This comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul writes these words. He says, you are God's masterpiece. In other words, you are God's work of art. He put you together just like he wants you to be. He gave you passions and personality. He gave you skills and gifts and abilities. And he put all of that together when he formed you in your mother's womb. He put you together just like he wanted you to be. And your job in this life is to find out how did God make me and what does that suggest about what he wanted me to do with my life. 
And when we discover how God has made us and we begin to spend most of our time doing what God created us to do, we get fulfillment. There's meaning, there's purpose, there's joy, and there's impact. Here's, here's what we've been saying about divine calling, and this is the key. When you find your personal sweet spot and you spend most of your time leaning into who God made you to be, and while you're doing that, you always are working on your primary calling of making disciples, that is the place where your divine calling rests. When you are doing what God created you to do and you are doing it with the ultimate purpose of making disciples, that is what God has created you for. That's what God wants to do with your life. And every single person in this room has a divine calling from God that needs to be discovered and lived out. Now with that, you gotta have personal commitment, right? If we think that our lives are always gonna be up and to the right, it just doesn't work that way. I wish I could tell you that life in, in, in God's kingdom is always a mountaintop. I would be totally fabricating that. It's just not true. Life is full of mountaintops and a lot of valleys. There's steps forward and there are apparent steps backwards. There are challenges and hurdles and difficulties. And some of us miss God's purpose in our lives because when hard things happen, we think we must have missed it. Except life is just full of hard things, right? Jesus told us this. We shouldn't be surprised. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus told us the truth, right? So we, when we face those moments of trouble, those valleys, those difficulties, we have to have a personal commitment to stay the course. And then the last thing that we've been learning from Joseph's life, which is really what we've been unpacking in the rest of this series, is that we need God's help. Right, we learn this from Joseph. He had a divine calling. He had personal commitment. But at every turn, we read this phrase in Joseph's story. The Lord was with Joseph. Every place he went, the pit, uh, to Potiphar's house, falsely accused and imprisoned, into Pharaoh's palace, every single part of his journey, the Lord was with Joseph. And this is why Joseph was so effective in fulfilling his purpose, not just because he had a call, not just because he had commitment, but because God was with him. God was helping him. And we've been asking ourselves this really important question throughout this series. We've been asking ourselves, what are the kind of characteristics that need to be a part of our life if we're gonna be the kind of people that the Lord will be with? Joseph lived his life a certain way, and because of that, God was pleased to be with him. He was pleased to help him and to magnify his leadership and use him in his day and in his time. What does it take to be that kind of person? And we've been exploring those principles in this series. Last week, we talked about unwavering integrity, right? Temptation comes. And how do we stay the course when we're facing temptation? This morning, for a few minutes, I want to talk to you about the second characteristic that Joseph exemplifies, responsible stewardship. Responsible stewardship. And when we read Joseph's story, what we find is that he didn't just live a life of integrity, but he lived a life of responsible stewardship. And because of this, Pharaoh actually promotes him. 
He actually elevates him to this role in Egypt as second in command. The only person with a higher rank or authority is Pharaoh himself. And, and what we see in Genesis chapter 41 is Pharaoh is actually putting Joseph in the place where his God-given dream will become a reality. Pharaoh is elevating Joseph, saying, Joseph, I'm gonna give you this platform for influence, and it's from this platform for influence that Joseph will fulfill God's purpose for his life. Look at the promotion. It comes in verses 41 through 44. It was read just a few moments ago for us. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed a signet ring from his hand, placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for the second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Now, just understand what's happening here. E Egypt is now going to be run by a Jewish boy who was rejected by his family, sold into slavery, falsely accused and imprisoned. And now this individual has been elevated to the highest office in the land, save one. Pharaoh is the only person above him. This is, this is amazing. Right? And, and it's, it's just how God works. God had a plan for Joseph's life and he was committed to seeing that plan fulfilled and he uses Pharaoh at just the right moment to elevate Joseph to the place where his dream is gonna be fulfilled. That dream that God gave Joseph so many years ago. Now, why was Joseph promoted by Pharaoh? I think there are two or three reasons that we see his promotion. The first, I think, that we just need to acknowledge is the favor of God. If you go back and you read verses 37 through 38, I want you to see a couple of key phrases. This is what it says. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the spirit of God? I mean, just understand what's happening here. Joseph has literally just been dragged out of prison to say, hey, we hear you can interpret some dreams. Could you interpret these dreams? And just in a moment, after interpreting the dreams, Pharaoh's like, is there anybody else who's smarter than this guy? I mean, this is amazing. He, his, his suggestions, his interpretations were well received and so much so that Pharaoh said, the spirit of God is in this man. Now, Pharaoh is not a follower of the God of the Jewish people at this time. And yet this secular ruler can see the spirit of God at work in and through Joseph's life. Wouldn't it be cool if your secular boss would say that about you? Can we find anybody in whom the spirit of God is so obvious like this person? 
Joseph is acknowledged as a person that has God's favor resting on his life by a person who doesn't even believe in the God from whom the favor comes. This is amazing. Joseph is promoted because of the favor of God. He was also promoted because Joseph was simply fulfilling his calling. Everywhere he went, he was fulfilling his calling. Didn't matter if if it was where he thought his dream was gonna be fulfilled or whether he thought he was here and getting a bad deal. Didn't matter. Wherever he was at, Joseph just stepped into that place and fulfilled his calling. Joseph knew that he was a descendant of Abraham. And he knew the call that God had placed upon Abraham and his descendants. Genesis chapter 12, which is the great commission of the Old Testament. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and all of the nations on earth will be blessed through you. Joseph, as a descendant of Abraham, knew that call. And everywhere he went, he had that call in the back of his mind that my job in this environment is to be a blessing to all nations. Wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, that's my call. And your call is to make disciples. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, that's your call, make disciples. Right? This is the call of God on our lives. Joseph knew his call. Joseph also knew that he had some skills and some gifts and some abilities that God had given to him. He could administrate things. He could organize people and projects and plans and he could make things happen from a role of leadership. This is why in every environment they said, you ought to be the director of operations. You get things done, you organize people, you actually move the project forward. And so they just elevated Joseph because he knew what he was good at and every environment he was in, he just did what he was good at. That's what God is asking us to do. Find what he created you for and be the very best you can be at it. And while you're doing that thing, remember you are called to make disciples. So whenever you're doing the thing you're good at, just keep asking the spirit of God, how do I make disciples while I'm doing this? Joseph fulfilled his calling and it caused Pharaoh to elevate him. Look at what it says in verses 39 and 40. Since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne will have a rank higher than yours. Joseph was fulfilling his calling. Pharaoh said, just do that for me. Just keep doing what you've done in every other environment. He had the favor of God. He was fulfilling his calling. And then thirdly, he was a faithful steward. And that's what I really want to talk to you about today. Joseph was a faithful steward. It's fascinating. When you study the life of Joseph, you recognize pretty quickly that Joseph is always a steward. He's never an owner. There's never anything that's put in his control or underneath of his authority or in his influence or power that he owns. He is always a steward. You say, what's a steward? Well, a steward is someone who manages something owned by someone else. So when someone says, hey, I own this property, but I want you to take care of it, what you are in that moment is a steward. 
You're a manager of what belongs to someone else. And when you look at Joseph's life, from the time that he is sold by his brothers into slavery, Joseph never owns anything. He is only ever a steward. In Potiphar's house, the things that he controls, the things that he runs do not belong to him. They belong to Potiphar and his job is just simply to manage them well. And when he goes to the prison and the warden says, hey, could you take care of the prison? Joseph steps into the role, not as the owner of the prison, he's still a prisoner. He just has to manage the prison well. And when he gets to Pharaoh's palace, the Pharaoh doesn't give him the kingdom He just says, could you run the kingdom for me? Joseph is never an owner. He's only always and forever a steward. And by the way, the same is exactly true of you. In your life, you are never an owner. Even if you've signed some documents and filed them with the county or the state or the federal government to say, I own this business, I got news for you, you don't own it. There is nothing in your life that you own. God owns it all. 